All right, good morning. I tell you what, I could not be more excited about VBS this coming week. Uh, I've been saying all week, welcome kids to Excavator Missions. And so if, uh, if you have not uh, heard about VBS this week, uh, our team has been working really, really hard to, to prepare, and uh, it's coming together really well. We've got around 30 kids that are signed up for it. And several of those families are not connected to a church family right now. And so I would highly encourage you this week to be in prayer for these kids and these, these parents. Many of them are going to hear the gospel for the, for the first time, potentially. And so hopefully we can not just uh, see them come to know Christ, but get them connected to a, to a church family, too. So be in prayer. We're going to be praying for our, our team at the end of the service, too. And so uh, right now, though, what I want you to do is go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. As we continue to walk through Luke, we're going to be looking at, uh, starting in verse 13, looking at the, the, the story of Jesus and the, uh, the disciples celebrating Passover. And while you're turning there, let me ask you a question. I want you to think back, what is the most memorable gift that you've ever received? Okay, think to yourself, what's the most memorable, the greatest gift that you have ever received? If you do a quick Google search, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you can do a search of what is the most exact, the, the biggest, the greatest gift given to somebody in the history of the world, okay, the most extravagant gifts. And you're going to see, there's a bunch of lists out there, and you're going to see some common items that keep coming up. For, for example, like the, the Statue of Liberty, okay, that's one of them that always appears on these lists because that was a big gift given to us at, from France. Uh, during the, uh, the Independence War. Uh, another one that comes up, even bigger than that, I think, is the Taj Mahal. I don't know if you knew that. That was a gift given by Emperor Shah Jahan to his late wife as a memorial. One of the interesting ones, I thought, was uh, Joe DiMaggio gave six long-stem red roses to Marilyn Monroe after she passed away, which doesn't sound that impressive until you hear that he did it three times a week for 20 years. It's like 19,000 roses almost. And so how do we measure the quality of a gift? We typically do it in three ways. First of all, we ask the question, okay, how much did they sacrifice to give this to me? How much money did they spend? How much time did they spend on it? But even if they spend a ton of time and spend a lot of money, uh, if it's not something you really wanted or needed, it's not that big of a deal, right? So the second thing we look at is how, it, how much do we want this or how much do we actually need this gift. If it's something that cost them a lot and it's something we actually want or, or needed, that's even better. And then the third thing that we look at when we're measuring the quality of a gift is how far above our expectations do they go? And so if it's something that goes way above what we ever thought they would give us or maybe we weren't even expecting a gift at all, it, that, that makes it even better. Today's passage, Jesus is sharing this Passover feast with his disciples, and in doing so, he describes the, the nature and the meaning of his death, the reason for his death, and he ushers in the new covenant, which is an amazing gift to us. In fact, Jesus is the greatest gift the world has ever given, or that God has ever given the world. And so he says, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember the new covenant as the greatest gift ever given to you. And so my prayer today as we look a little bit deeper into this, uh, this passage is that we would, one, 
come to a better understanding of who Christ is and, and what he's done for us, what he's accomplished for us, especially as we celebrate communion and what that means to us. And so let me pray and then we'll start diving into this passage. Father, I recognize that it is very easy for us to kind of go through the motions when we come to church. And so we confess that to you and we plead with you to help us to have a better understanding, but more importantly, help our hearts and the eyes of our hearts to open to see the significance of this meal that we take on a regular basis, communion, and the significance behind it, that we would take it seriously, that we would that our, the affections of our hearts would be raised and we, we would have a whole new appreciation and love that, that, that communion would be sweeter for us because of this passage. Help us to understand it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so some quick context. So this is uh, in Luke. We're at the point where it's Thursday, the day before the crucifixion. Uh, in the morning on Thursday, Jesus sends two of his closest disciples to go and prepare the Passover meal. And so they go, and it seems like Jesus has already prearranged that the disciples are going to have this meal in this upper room. And this is a big deal. I, I said last week that it's significant that Jesus chose to explain the reason for his death, not through a sermon, but through a, a celebration. And this upper room, uh, John, if you go to the Gospel of John, he actually explains there's a lot that goes on in this upper room that Luke doesn't really explain. Uh, this is the place where Jesus washes their feet, okay? This is the place where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the place where Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, chooses this celebration that they've been celebrating for 1,300 years together, and he's about to blow his disciples' minds because he's saying, look, this celebration that you've been celebrating since you've been a wee little child is really ultimately all about me, is what he's saying. And so let's pick up in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, we're going to stop there. There's three lessons that I want us to see in this text, and they, are, they get really practical, especially when we're taking communion. And so when you take communion, number one, you need to take it seriously. Number two, you need to look both backwards and forwards. You need to look backwards and you need to look forwards. Back to the past and anticipate the future. And then thirdly, you need to make it personal and you need to make it communal. 
You need to make it personal and you need to make it communal. Okay, so first of all, take it seriously. Jesus says he earnestly desired to share this moment with his disciples. In the original language, he literally says, I desired to desire, which is kind of weird in English, but it's kind of like when, a, when you've got a little kid and they're like, I really, 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 really wanted something. And so there's this eagerness. In fact, some translations say he eagerly desired or he fervently desired. The message paraphrases it like this. You have no idea how much I have looked forward to this moment. So for Jesus, this meal is a big deal. And Jesus only gives one command. There's only one command that he gives in this whole passage, and he's emphatic about it. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And so the Lord's Supper and Baptism are actually the only two ordinances of the church. Uh, for us, and an ordinance is just a fancy church word for it's a command given by Christ that has a tangible element that acts as an outward symbol of an inward reality. Okay, so in other words, when we celebrate communion together, there's rich symbolism. The, the bread and the juice represent something deeper, something profound. It, it's kind of like a wedding ring. Okay, you think about a wedding ring. A wedding ring is not just a, a piece of metal that's shaped in a circle to put on your finger for decoration. There's deep meaning in it. It's usually made out of a precious metal because it represents the preciousness of a, of a relationship. It's made into a circle because a circle doesn't have an end, doesn't have a beginning. And so it represents the, the forever kind of love that you're supposed to have with your, your spouse. And did you know, this is something I, I found out recently, that we put it on the ring finger on, on the left hand because originally they believed that there was a vein that went straight from that finger all the way to the heart. And so there's a lot of meaning behind it. I remember when we were first married, my wedding ring wasn't sized right. It was way too big, and so it would slip off like all the time. And uh, this one time, I'm getting out of the car, and it slips off, and it flies underneath the car and goes into the grass. And uh, we can't find it. It's, it's like gone. Can't see it anywhere. Now, do you think I just said, oh, well, let's go in the house? No, of course not. I mean, we got on our hands and knees and looked for that ring forever. And in fact, I even called a neighbor to come over because I knew he had a, a metal detector. And eventually, he found it. And you think I was like, oh, cool, and just went in the house? No. I mean, we screamed so loud that probably our whole neighborhood heard it because the wedding ring represents something more significant. It represents the, the love that I have for my wife. Well, when we take communion, it should have a richer and a deeper significance to us than even a wedding ring. Remember, marriage is only supposed to be a reflection of the relationship that we have with Christ. It's kind of like looking at the moon, but in communion, we're remembering the sun. We're, we're looking at the, the original. And so when you miss worship and, and you can't have communion together, it should be a little, it should hurt a little bit. It should feel like you're, you're missing your, your wedding ring. When we started Mercy Hill, uh, we, early on we decided that we wanted to have communion every single week. And part of that is because I see evidence in the New Testament, especially in Acts, that the early church celebrated communion whenever they gathered together. And also, communion naturally centers us back on the gospel. And I think that's something that we need as believers. We need to be centered on the gospel. 
But there was some pushback because what if by celebrating it every single week, it kind of loses its meaning? What if we just kind of start going through the motions because we're, we're just so used to it and we can kind of become callous to it? But here's what I found, at least in my own heart, by celebrating every single week, it's actually increased my appreciation for communion. It's kind of like uh, if you're married and you only kiss your wife like once a quarter, is that really going to help the significance of your love with them? No, of course not. I love that we share in communion every single week. Now, the Apostle Paul actually addresses uh, many issues with the Church of Corinth. Okay, if you've read Corinthians, you know the Church of Corinth is a really messed up church, and so there's lots of things he addresses, but one of the things that he addresses is communion, because they were just taking communion, and they were making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. Uh, some of them were coming, and they were like gorging themselves and using it as a, as a meal to, to fill their bellies, and some of them were getting drunk with the wine, and so there was no, none left over for other people, and so Paul addresses them about this, and this is what he says. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. And so Paul says, don't ever just go through the motions. It ought to be a time that you're examining yourself and checking your own heart. Never just walk up and, and not be thoughtful. Communion should be a sacred event every single week where we think deeply about the sacrificial love of Christ. Now, the second lesson that I want us to look at in this passage is that when we celebrate communion, it should cause us to look backwards, but it should also cause us to look forwards. And so the command is to do this in remembrance of me. So communion should always be a reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus, the gift of salvation. And when we take communion, we should intentionally be thankful. We should be thanking him for giving up his body, for shedding his blood. We should thank him for absorbing the wrath of God that we deserve, for atoning for our sins and forgiving us, for treason against a holy God. We should remember, and, and really we should use our imaginations during this time. We should imagine what Christ had to go through for us on the cross to, to pay the penalty for our sins. We should imagine the nails going into his, his hands and his feet because of our sins. But understand this. The command to remember that Jesus gives us here is not simply mentally recalling the history so that we tear up a little bit. Okay, it's not about an emotional experience. Jesus expects us to reapply the gospel to our present lives. That's the sense that we get when he says, do this in remembrance of me. It's kind of like a rainbow. God gives Noah the rainbow as a, as a reminder of his faithfulness, of a promise that he's never going to flood the world again. So every time we see a rainbow, it should not just remind us of what God did in the past, but it should give us hope. It should fill our hearts with a, a present hope. Let me give you a more modern-day example. And so yesterday, Cam and I celebrated our 22nd anniversary. And uh, it probably would not cut it if I just remembered our anniversary in my head. Okay? There, there's more, rightfully, there's more expectation that goes 
with that. Our, our anniversary is to be an opportunity for us not to just acknowledge the past, but also to renew the covenant commitment and the love that we have for one another. It's an opportunity for me to uh, pursue and to cherish and to love afresh my wife like I did when I vowed to do that 22 years ago. That's how Jesus expects us to do this in remembrance of me. It's a weekly opportunity for us to recalibrate our hearts and, and reinvest our lives for Christ. Now, communion should also cause us to look forward and anticipate the future. Notice that Jesus mentions twice in this passage that he will not get to participate in this meal with the disciples again until the coming of the kingdom. So what's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about what Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a, a huge feast and a celebration at the end times when Christ comes back in all of his glory and will come together as a whole church family. Every tongue, tribe, and nation, and we'll have this huge feast and this huge celebration because Jesus will finally have put completely to end sin and death and pain and suffering and Satan. And so when we take communion, it's kind of it's today, when we take communion, it's kind of like the rehearsal dinner, right? It's good, it's meaningful, but it anticipates an even greater feast at the wedding. It's kind of like the appetizer, it's good, but the best is yet to come. So one last lesson. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it should be both personal to us, but also it should be communal, okay? Jesus says to his disciples after breaking the bread, this is my body given for you. And he takes the wine, he says, this, is, this cup is poured out, which is language of death, right? This cup is poured out for you. And so when we take communion, we should be thankful that the God who created the universe and the trillions of galaxies and the stars and knows them by name also knows your name. He knows all your hidden sins, and yet he chose to personally save you. If you're a Christian, that means that you can insert your name in the place of you in this passage. And so Jesus says to me, this is my body given for you, Nathan. This is my body given for you, Glenn. This is my body given for you, Jenny. This, is my, this cup is poured out for you, Becky. And so we should take it personally. It's an opportunity for you to renew and to recalibrate your personal relationship with the Lord. You know, I can tell when the Lord is really moving within our Mercy Hill family on Sunday mornings because it's on those Sundays where not everybody stands up at the same time after communion's over. And so I get to sit in the back and kind of watch what's going on. And there, there's certain Sundays where maybe one or two people will stand up and most everybody else is still in prayer. And then a, a few more will kind of stagger up and some people just stay seated in prayer for that whole first song. And it's on those Sundays that I get goosebumps because I, I can see the Lord working. You just can't manufacture that. Today, let's make the Lord's Supper personal, but also let's remember that there's a reason we call it communion. It needs to be communal also. It means we celebrate together. Jesus tells them to, to pass the cup around and to share it. 
Probably not going to do that during COVID-19. But there is a communal aspect to it that's necessary. Uh, we see the early church doing this. In Acts chapter 2, we read at the end, verse, starting in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, many wonders and signs being performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and their possessions to give to one another as had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread. I, most scholars believe that he's talking about communion there. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. I'm convinced that we have been hardwired to connect and build relationships over food. Okay, And as Baptists, we do this pretty well. But... If you, I mean, on our first date, I made Kim a meal. Worked out pretty well for me, I think. Uh, it, some people say, looking at the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus is either uh, going to a meal, or he's in a meal, or he's coming from a meal. And just about the whole Gospel. When we celebrate communion together, we are together as a family, sitting at the king's table. We're collectively confessing that we are sinners in need of the blood of Jesus to forgive us, and we're proclaiming that it is the gospel and only the gospel that restores us to a right relationship with God and to one another. And Paul even says that, look, if you've got a broken relationship with somebody in your church family, you ought to go to them and try to reconcile, do whatever you can to try to reconcile that relationship before you come to the communion table. And so it's in communion as a family together that we're transported back to that upper room. And we anticipate also the wedding feast where everybody will get to come together and celebrate. We get a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like together. Also, I think it's significant that Jesus makes the statement that the cup represents the new covenant in his blood. Uh, you go to Hebrews chapter 10, and I think it's significant that the author of Hebrews, and we use this passage all the time to encourage people not to miss church, Right? <laughs> Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you know, though, that the context of that verse is that the author of Hebrews is talking about the benefits of, the, of living under the new covenant? And so it's a direct application of living underneath the new covenant that we would come together often. He, and... In the Old Covenant, the Israelites were, were bound together by a common ancestry and a common law. But the New Covenant, the church is bound together by the blood of Christ and the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside of us. When we come together to celebrate communion, part of what we're doing is we're celebrating this new covenant that we now live under. And I could, I could preach a whole sermon, maybe even a sermon series on the benefits of the New Covenant. But let me try to summarize it like this. The New Covenant is God giving us a whole new way of relating to him. Because Christ forgave our sins and gives us a right standing now before God, we've got huge benefits now. Instead of the Spirit of God dwelling with us, he now dwells inside of us. And so because of that, we've been given a new birth, we've been given a new heart, we're a new creation, we've got a new identity, and now we're able to have a whole new intimate fellowship with God in which God's law is now actually written on our hearts, which changes our desires 
and we want to please him. In this new covenant, we now have a new certainty of our relationship with the Lord. In the new covenant, God wipes away both our guilt and he is wiping away our rebellion. And he's established the church as the primary tool for us to grow as disciples and to proclaim the gospel to the world. And so this is why we celebrate together. We, said, we, we say this all the time, that culture is created by what we celebrate. Culture is created by what we celebrate. And so Christ wisely sets up the celebration of communion for the church to create a culture that is constantly reminding us what he went through on the cross and the gift of, of salvation by atoning sacrifice of the perfect lamb. It also creates a culture where we anticipate together the coming wedding feast. And then finally it creates a, a culture where we sacrificially love one another just like Christ sacrificially loves us. And so if we celebrate, if we take this seriously, that's the kind of culture that we're going to continue to foster. It's the kind of culture that this world desperately needs to see and feel from the church today. And so would you pray with me that, you, that God would help us to continue to take seriously communion, that we would celebrate it in such a way that would create a culture of sacrificial love towards one another. Father, we come to you right now and we, first of all, we thank you for this word. We thank you that in your wisdom you have created a celebration that creates a culture within our church family. Most of all, I pray right now that as we move into communion together as a family, that this would be a moment that would be sweet, that would be significant to us because it represents so much more than we realize just on the surface.